I represent a whole section of society that no one knows about and no one talks about. And so that was always my agenda. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, True Detective, True Blood, I guess you can even say Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. What do all these TV shows have in common? They have all featured fictional stories about cults. But what is it really like to live most of your life in a religious cult? Claire Ashman was brought up in a sect, which she says is a breakaway from a already established religion. This particular one was the Society of St. Pius X, which was a breakaway of the Catholic Church. Once she turned 18, her now ex-husband moved them to a religious cult, Order of St. Jabel. I spoke to her about transitioning from a sect to a cult, to then escaping the cult and adapting to the normal ways of the rest of society. We spoke about the corruption of religious cult leaders, her current relationship with the Catholic Church, and how has previous life in a cult affected her social life today. This is Claire Ashman. So Claire, what are the core beliefs and values of the Society of St. Pius X sect? So with them, they didn't like or accept any of the changes in the Catholic Church that began in 1962. So they go right back to the teachings of Pope Pius X. So they go back, so almost a a bit more than a century, basically, in their teachings, and they are very strict. So if you see the old, the very old black and white movies of Latin masses with the elaborate vestments and the priest saying mass with his back to the people, singing Gregorian chant, you know, lots of prayers, fasting, women wearing scarves over their heads. That was the way I was brought up. Their beliefs are the Catholic Church is too modern right now and none of the changes are in accordance to the Catholic Church. So they don't accept any of those changes and they have all of the old beliefs. So they do not believe in any contraception. They believe that a woman must be submissive to her husband, that you're married for life, that you have as many children as God sends, which means just basically, you know, as many, you know, can be usually, it's usually more, well more than eight. And all of those old teachings that we believe, you know, like we understand now to be very old-fashioned. We were taught not to ever question what the priest told us because they, we were taught that they were the closest to God and they had been through the seminary, so they had all the teachings and learnings behind them. So in, therefore, they were basically like God and they knew all the answers to everything. So people would not generally question them at all. It was only when we... When my ex-husband moved myself and our children to the cult, it was called the Order of St. Chabelle and it was run by William Cam, who was otherwise known as the Little Pebble. We went there in early 97 and we left there in August 2006. Now, anybody there who would question anything that he said, they they were basically isolated. So he would, he, he said that he would look upon them with love and forgiveness, but if you did question things, well, then you were instantly put on the outer and you weren't trusted. So it would take a lot to be able to be back in favour with them, so to speak. What were the main differences you noticed when you moved from the sect to the cult Order of St. Chapel? 
Well, with the Society of St. Pius X, you're, you're part of a sect and you all believe the same thing and you all practice the same thing, maybe a little bit differently here and there. You know, as in some people homeschool their children and they choose not to have television, etc. Yet other families that attend the Society of St. Pius X are, you know, they live in the suburbs and they're quite happy to have television and for their kids to go to public schools or, you know, schools in general. But with the Order of St. Chabelle, he had a number of properties around the world. So he had it so that there were a number of people that lived on these properties. On the particular one that we lived in in Nara, there were 180 people living there at that point. And that property is surrounded by barbed wire fences and locked gates. So people were all living together on the one property. We all attended the church that was on that property. We were heavily discouraged from going to church in the outside parish. There was a primary school there, so you were not allowed to send your children to any other primary school except that one. And everybody had to wear, like, um, it was called a scapula, and it was just a big piece of cloth that looked like a poncho and had a big white cross on the front of it and we everybody had to wear that over their clothes whenever they went out of their house so whether they were just walking around the property or whether they were working in the office or whether they were working in the school or going to any prayers or any meals we all had to wear that over our clothes and we were working towards self-sufficiency because apparently the world was supposed to end in the year 2000. What was it like for you adjusting to Order of St. Chapelle? Uh, I hated it. I never wanted to move there in the first place because I had already started questioning my wife and because we lived in the suburbs when we got married so first for a couple of years. You know, I quite liked living in the suburbs, having come from the country. I liked being, you know, near, you know, like living in the suburbs, having the kids go to the local school. I was just starting to branch out and make friendships and trying to just figure out who I was. So when my ex-husband decided to move us up there from Melbourne to Nara, where the Order of St. Chabelle is, I didn't want to go at all. On the outside, I looked like I was adhering to all the rules and regulations and whatever else. But on the inside, like emotionally... Um, mentally I did not cope very well at all and I didn't like it it was I found it very difficult because there was no real privacy I'd never wanted to live all bunched together you know like in a like a ten of sardines on the one property I didn't want my kids to grow up like that I wanted my kids to have a more normal life than what I had and this seemed to just be moving us backwards so I didn't like any of that at all in both the sect and cult, you were told the world was going to end. How did that way of thinking impact your way of life and happiness knowing the world was ending? When I look back on it, because when you're in it, you don't realise, but looking back on it, the world was supposed to end about every six months. Every day there was always that pressure of, you know, you've got one day less on this earth you've got to try and fit in as much prayer as you can much work as you can in order to be able to offer it up as a sacrifice so that you're staving off God's almighty arm so there'll be no you know at least the chastisements will be put off for a little bit longer or you know you're going to save your soul so there was there was that but when you say impacting your happiness like it was only it was only a few years after I left that I actually realised that all of those years I'd been numb 
because, and I didn't realise that until I started to thaw out. And once I started to thaw out and feel happiness, I suddenly realised that I hadn't felt happiness for a very long time. So in reality, I was just surviving. I was just surviving from day to day, from hour to hour, from day to day, just literally putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, looking after my kids and just doing the very best I could in that time. You didn't have happiness, so to speak, and then you're also told that, we, you know, we're not put on this earth to be happy, we're put on this earth to sacrifice so that we can, we can be happy in heaven and have a higher place in heaven. So everything's always like, you know, just get past this, just get, just, you know, just, just do this, just do that. But it always seemed to be like more and more and more. There was more prayer, more sacrifice. But just in the end, that's what made me basically just go, I've had enough. I, I, I literally didn't care anymore about what anybody thought or what happened as in like, you know, like I just didn't care whether the world ended or not anymore because I was so tired mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially. Everything was just shot and all I wanted was out. I just wanted to be out and away from there. I didn't know where I was going or what I would do, but I just wanted to be out of there. So Claire, how did you escape? We escaped in the form of an eviction from the sheriff, the local sheriff, because William Cam stopped paying the mortgage on the house that we were in and um, we got evicted by the sheriff, the local sheriff. So to me, that was a mini miracle. He came on a Friday afternoon and gave us 12 days to leave and that's how it happened. I did not realise it at the time, but about 18 months before, I brought that about by writing a series of letters whereby I challenged William Cam's authority. And at that point, he was going through a court case for pedophilia. So he stopped paying the mortgage and funneled that money into his court case, thereby bringing about the eviction. But I didn't know that was happening. So basically, he found a way of being able to get rid of the troublemaker without having any blood on his hands, so to speak. Wow, that is just the lowest of low. I know. But I mean, look, the thing is, he wanted to look good in, you know, to everybody else. He was such a bastard because he knew what he'd done, like that he hadn't paid the mortgage. He knew that the eviction would come about. And so when people heard that we had been evicted and his wife, you know, she was horrified that we were being evicted and he just acted like he had, you know, there was nothing he could do, that he had nothing to do with it and, like, it was just totally out of his hands and it was in God's plan. I mean, really? I found that out a few years later when I was talking to her and she said she had no idea that he had been the instrument instrument of that all along. So where is William Cam now? He's living in Sydney, actually. Mm-hmm. He, he got married again, and he's got a monitor around his foot that he's not allowed to have any underage females around him at all, and he's not allowed in the Nara area at the moment anyway. Mm-hmm. However, the thing is that the whole organisation is still running. So even though he's not physically there, 
He's still running it. He's still spouting the same thing that is going to be the hope at the end of the at the end of time. And you know, like the world's still going to end, and there's still chastisements happening, and blah blah blah. He's still spouting it. There's people still believing it, and he's still getting donations or whatever you want to call it. So there's still money coming in. So he's still making money. You know what I mean? And yeah, it, it's just wrong. It's really wrong. You have written a book about growing up in a sect and also your terrible experience living in a cult. Has there been any backlash from anyone in the Society of St. Pius X or Order of St. Chabel? No. No, nobody said anything to me. And I mean, for me, I have no fear about anybody doing anything because my ex-husband, he won't sue me. I mean, I've got too much evidence here whereby he can't, you know, what I've said is the truth, so he can't do anything about it. William Cam, I mean, I can back everything up with what I've said, So, and it is the truth, so he can't do anything either. In saying that, it's not the same for every person who leaves a sect or a cult or a restrictive group because some people have great difficulty in leaving these groups and they cannot speak about it because they are threatened or they are stalked. When you left the cult, what was it like re-establishing your role as a woman? Because in the cult, women had strict roles and clear expectations. What was it like getting your independence? Well, when I first left, the world literally smacked me in the face because it was so, you know, I was I was socially naive, I was educationally backward. Yeah, there was a lot of things that I needed to catch up on, you know, like socially, educationally, everything. I found that really hard. I always felt like I was on the back foot. In saying that, even though the world smacked me in the face at the start, and I, I did feel very backward and I had a lot to learn, that freedom of not having somebody looking over your shoulder, not having to hide in a way because... The thing is that you've always got somebody looking, you know, like they may not be literally looking over your shoulder and like spying through your windows or anything like that. You know, there was times when I would show up for mass or for prayers in the chapel. And I mean, to me, it'd just be like, oh, you know, I wore these particular clothes on that day. Somebody could look at at what I was dressed in and it'd be like, you know, they would make an assumption or there'd be some rumour started about why I wore that dress or whatever it was. And... You know, coming out and away from that and knowing that there was, you know, I could literally go into town or I could literally walk down the street and, you know, like people in the houses or people on the street would just see a girl walking down the street and there wouldn't be any questions or conjecture about why I wore that particular top with that particular skirt or why my hair was like that or why wasn't I wearing something or... You know what I mean? And I, mm-hmm. I had that freedom to watch what I wanted on TV and read what I wanted. It was very it was very freeing. And, and as the years have gone on and I've been more free to make my choices without having any, any retribution or anybody criticising those choices, I can literally make those choices myself. And it is very freeing. When you've, you know, like I've even surprised myself in that I walked away from 30 years of indoctrination and 
for me, I have completely reinvented myself. I have questioned everything. I have, I've literally reinvented my brain. Like I, you know, I still have my past, and that still makes me who I am today. But I've been able to build on that, and I'm forever building on that, and asking more questions and figuring more things out. And I find it really exciting and fascinating. And what's your relationship like with the Catholic Church since you have had a very complicated experience with it? I love how you've worded that question. I love that. It has never been worded like that before. Um, <laughs> well, I, do, I don't consider myself religious. I consider myself spiritual. It is very... I don't know how to put this. It's... You know, like, I, I, when I moved up here to Brisbane, which was nearly, what was it, six, seven years ago now, I haven't set foot in a, I have set foot in a church, but not to hear Mass. I haven't actually gone to Mass for that period of time. So, for all those years, I went to the Latin Mass, and then I had some form of the English Mass a bit sort of conservative when I was in the cold. And then I attended the normal parish mass. So I've been through all the stages and I've understood each and every one. And then having let it all go and not been to any mass whatsoever, I can now now stand back and look from the outside in and have a a really different perspective yet a very deep understanding of all of that. And so I am actually, I've already done a theology slash sociology subject with religious studies. And now I am wanting to delve further into it because it actually fascinates me. So despite being, you know, having spent all of those years or most of my life being indoctrinated with Catholicism, I'm actually going back to religious study because it fascinates me, because I want to know. I want to know, like, who is God? What is God? Yeah, I don't know whether I'll ever find the answers or whether anybody has found the answers, but I just find it fascinating to just ask all of these questions and to study it. It was rather amusing because I actually travelled down to Melbourne on the day that Cardinal Pell was sentenced. It was March 13th. I was doing a library talk down there. And I walked past the Victoria Court and there was all the journalists and whatever awaiting the sentencing. And then I had this idea. I thought, you know what, I'll just pop into St. Pat's, which is St. Patrick's Cathedral in Melbourne because that's where he was Archbishop of Melbourne. And so I walked up and there were two guys standing out in front and I went to go in and they're going, no, no, you can't go in because mass was going on and we're not letting any tourists in. So I just thought, well, I'm getting in there one way or another. So I just sat in my eyelids and I said, oh, but I'm Catholic. And they go, oh, well, if you promise not to take any photos. And I said, cool. And they let me in. I'm like, boom, pull the Catholic card. And then we're halfway through mass and I'm sitting there. Like I just sat there and I just observed and I'm looking at these people that are kneeling down. They've got their rosaries. They're being very devout. And I'm not, I'm not judging anybody here. I'm just saying this is my observation. And then there was the consecration, which is, you know, and I'm hearing my mother's voice in my head. The consecration is the most important part of the Mass. It's the most sacred part of Mass. You've got to be quiet. You've got to make sure that you are kneeling down. You've got to make sure that you have arrived at Mass before then because if you arrive after then, that means you haven't really heard Mass. 
And so then I see some people sworn in after the consecration and I'm like, oh my goodness, mum would be horrified. And then some chick swarmed in literally just before communion and then went up to Holy Communion. I'm like, oh my God, don't you know? You shouldn't be doing that. Just like, but I can look back on it. Like, you know, I can have this going on in my head and I, um, for me, I can see the humour in it and I can... And, but then I'm sitting there too during that consecration, you know, when mum would, would mum was, you know, always taught us, you know, it's the most sacred part, and it's when the, you know, when the priest consecrates the body and you know the bread and wine is the body and blood of Christ. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, is this really happening? Is it really happening? Like, you know, like, and, and so I'm totally just looking at it as an observer, but with the understanding of what I was taught. So it was really, it was kind of surreal but I mean I have found it amazing when I've walked into churches you know even when I went over to England walking into churches and just seeing you know like I'm having instant you know like even on the dates certain dates you know March 17 Feast of St Patrick March 19 Feast of St Joseph my birthday April 30th is the Feast of St Catherine of Siena like you know I just and then I can see I can see statues, and they don't. I don't even have to know the name. Like I don't have to see the name engraved on the bottom, but I, I can tell from the, the shape of the of the statue and the way it, you know its colours and whatever else. Okay, that's Catherine of Siena. That's Our Lady of Mount Carmel. It's Our Lady of Perpetual Succor. Blah blah blah. It's it's amazing what pops into my head. Mm. <laughs> so yes, I find it fascinating, and I think well now why not build on that. What has been something that has been very difficult for you to adjust since leaving the cult? It was very difficult for me when I started dating again. I was 39 years old. You know, like, I've never dated in my life, and I'd had eight children. It's pretty weird and kind of surreal, you know, to be going on a date for the first time in your life at that age, and you don't know what to expect, you don't know what sort of, you know, what sort of boundaries you should have, like, you know, they're nice to you, so you think, oh, you know, this is lovely, maybe, you know, and you, you start thinking, oh, no, maybe I could stay with him, but then, you know, you have a few days, and think, oh, don't like that. But all the things that I should have done and should have worked out when I was in my late teens, early 20s, mm. here I was, you know, 20 years down the track with kids, mind you, because, I mean, at that time, I had my eldest son, my eldest child was 18 so I mean it was weird because as I got to have friends I was totally a fish out of water because other women around me were the same age as, or about the same age as me however they'd already been to university had a career maybe have had their children and gone back to work but their two to four children were only half the age of mine so I'd already gone through having four teenagers at once, having four teenagers in high school, having my eldest child already finished HSC. And, you know, theirs are not even in year six yet. That would have been so difficult. And you're right, you definitely would have felt like a fish out of water because the only knowledge you had of the dating world would have been from the media. And even then, you had such limited access to. Well, that's it, yes. And, I mean, obviously, we all know now that, Everything is staged in a movie and it's never as romantic or whatever else. Yeah, you know, it never goes like a movie does. And, you know, what are you supposed to, you know, and like even the social cues, you know, it was hard for me to try and figure out because, I mean, you know, and guys would say to me, oh, you know, you're beautiful. I'm thinking, and I mean, for me, I'd never, 
because I'd never been told that I was beautiful. Like, I mean, you don't have to be told that you're beautiful, but I mean, I'd never been told that, you know, I was pretty or I was beautiful because, you know, that's a sin. So I'd never, I'd never thought about it, you know. I, I just honestly never thought about my look. So I, I was neither beautiful nor ugly. It just was, you know, I was just me. Um, but I appeared to attract guys that were just like, oh, my God, you're beautiful. And I thought, well, right, well, I'll just, you know, I just don't want them to be thinking, oh, no, she's stunning, I just want to bang her. Um, you know, I would hold them with, I've got eight kids. And they go, ha, yeah, sure, sure. You're just trying to scare me off. I go, no, seriously. And they're like, oh, okay, then, yeah, can we still go out on a date? And I'm thinking, what doesn't hold these guys back? You know, like, you know, like girls that I went out with, on a, you know, on a weekend or something like that. They would sort of think that I was saying that I had eight kids like as a trophy, but it wasn't the fact, I wasn't doing it for that reason. I was like, for me, I was being totally upfront and honest because I did not want some guy to go, oh, you know, she seems like a really nice girl, she seems really attractive, you know, I'd like to be with her. I wanted to be right up front from the very beginning and just go, I've got eight kids, I'm a package. So there's nine of us. I think many people wouldn't think that there is so many aspects in your life you would have had to adjust to once you escaped a cult. After going through all that, what made you decide to write your book, Lessons from a Cult Survivor? You know, a couple of people suggested that I should write a book, and I sort of went, eh, I don't, you know, like, why? You know, like, I hadn't, but I mean, I hadn't had enough time to process it or anything else. But then, you know, as I became to understand and then own my story more and more, and especially after I started giving TEDx talks, after I gave my first TEDx talk, there were so many people that came out of the woodwork and contacted me, you know, online. My thought was never just to share the story because it was, it's not about me. I represent a whole section of society that no one knows about and no one talks about. And so that was always my agenda. My thought was always to speak about my experience because it's not just me. There are literally hundreds of thousands of women and men too who are coming out of these groups. And they're of all ages. Some of them are married, some aren't, some have children, some don't. But either way, they're being slapped in the face with the world and they're going to have all of these emotions. They're going to have, you know, there's going to be anger, there's going to be rage, there's going to be frustration, there's going to be depression, there's going to be psychological and religious trauma. There's yeah, there's all of this that's, that's coming out and they, how are they meant to tell people about this? You know, like I heard about a woman who, a 32-year-old woman who has recently left a very restrictive movement, I don't know where, somewhere here in Australia, but she's 32 years old, she's not married, she doesn't have children, and I'm glad for her that she doesn't, um, but she's never had she doesn't, she's never had her own bank account, she's never had her own ATM card, she doesn't know how to use an ATM, she, you know, she, her education, she will have minimal education, and so... But now, she's 32 years old, so the world will look at her and be like, well, um, how come you don't have a career? How come you haven't gone to university? You know, why don't you have savings? Why don't you have a job? Like, why are you weird, you know? And that's not fair. With everything else that you have to deal with, having that on top of it is not fair, and it's not helpful. And 
that's why I wanted to speak out because I want to go, hey, this is what it's really like. You know, we need understanding from you people in the world who have had a normal life. Well, thank you very much. It really is amazing that you are helping those that have been raised to be voiceless and never question what they are told to believe. You're using your voice to really help empower men and women that are feeling lost after they escape these strict cults. And thank you for having me speak because I really do love to be interviewed and podcasts because I find that every person has a different perspective of different questions. And see, your question about my relationship with the Catholic Church because it's been complicated, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have to be the most humorous, insightful question I've had yet. I really like it. So thank you. I really, I really like that. And I'll probably bring that up in some talk that I give. That was cult survivor, author and TED Talk speaker Claire Ashman. For more information on Claire and to purchase her book, Lesson... That was cult survivor, author and TED Talk speaker Claire Ashman. For more information on Claire and to purchase her book, Lessons from a Cult Survivor, make sure you head to claireashman.com. Make sure you also check out the Nasty Woman Club Facebook page and Instagram page. This show was hosted and produced by myself, Demi Lynch. The Nasty Woman Club is a show dedicated to inspiring women telling their inspiring stories. So if you know someone that is inspiring and a badass nasty woman, please email the show at demiklynch at gmail.com.